0: listener production Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong, and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. In this episode, we focus on how to be more pragmatic what does a sensible leader do when things get tough? How do you navigate office politics? And how the management of tough times can define a leader? One of the most successful and most admired leaders in this country is former banker turned CEO and now non-executive director Anne Sherry. She's also a patron of many charities, helps young women all over the country and someone I definitely call on when the going gets tough. And thank you for joining the Leadership Podcast. Pleasure. Just going through your bio, it sounds to me, without putting you too much on the spot, that you are a natural-born leader. Would you say that's the case?
1: I'm not sure anyone's a natural-born leader. Maybe. And they often say, you know, where you sit in your family and a whole lot of stuff like that leads you to that place. And I am number one child. And uh, there, there are probably some things in my upbringing that gave me the opportunity to get confidence, which is part of the journey there. But, you know, natural born, I think, is probably a bit of a stretch. I think it's choice, opportunity, people pushing you into it a little bit when you're younger as well, and then the confidence to keep doing it.
0: Tell me why you decided to keep taking leadership roles and how much confidence did you require to to do that? Um, Part of my jumping around was, in fact,
1: not being prepared to settle for jobs or things around me that weren't working. So, you know, there's a piece of my journey which is about not settling for just a job. You know, I wanted a job that was challenging. I wanted to work with good people. I wanted jobs that stretched me, that had learning. And when that stopped, I'd look around going, so, well, this one's done, so what next? And that's part of Probably the confidence you build over time because people would say to me, How could you bear to change careers? It's like, Well, why would I stay in the one that I'm not enjoying anymore? So I sort of have an inverse relationship with maybe the risk to step into the void that is new career, new space. Um, I think the other thing is, I like the idea of doing things that people say you can't do. So you know, people said when I went out of the public sector, for example, into banking, oh, my God, how could you do that? And uh, it was seen as the evil empire if you're in the public sector. When I jumped into banking, they thought I was a boring bureaucrat, you know, so people typecast you, uh, which also I I rail against, really. And similarly, when I went from banking into cruising, people went, why on earth would you leave banking? And why on earth would you take on running a cruise business? And again, it was because Everyone said it was, you know, it was a hopeless case. It couldn't be done. Whereas my perspective on those things is it gave me stretch. It gave me learning. It gave me amazing opportunity. So I could see the upside and the downside for me. And I do have a voice in my head that says, what's the worst thing that could happen if I did this? And when you really think that stuff through about the next job, what's the worst thing that can happen? Well, The worst thing that can happen is it doesn't work out and you're back in the job market. And if you've got enough confidence to change jobs, then something else will come along. So the worst outcome I do think about, I don't jump wildly into things that are ridiculous. So, you know, I would never jump off a cliff, for example. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not so risk uh, tolerant that I'd do anything, but I do things that I think have plenty of upside.
0: And in which of those roles did you realise consciously that you were actually a leader that people were looking up to and expecting things from? Probably when I was, uh,
1: my first leadership job running a public sector agency in the Victorian government, which was in the, it was a long time ago now actually, it was in the sort of late 80s. And I was young. Uh, I'd been plucked really from a, you know, a a great job working in the Premier's Department and then the Department of Labor. But I I had already demonstrated that I could think a bit laterally, that I could come up with good policy positions. But that in itself isn't leadership. That's just brain power, really. You know, I could see things that other people maybe struggle to see. But the leadership role was the head of the uh, all of the childcare preschool, all of the children's services agencies in Victoria just as they were being reformed because there were so many women going back to work. And that was really the role where I got to lead, uh, where I got to be the head of an agency, uh, where there was nowhere to hide, and where I got to deal with some really, really, really hard issues uh, and demonstrate that I could lead an organisation and where people were excited about the future that we could create.
0: What do you describe as your strengths?
1: Uh, My strengths are that I like people. So that means that I I like having conversations with people. I like listening to stakeholders, customers, you know, whatever my job is. And I like talking to people inside my business and listening to them. Second thing is I trust people. So I assume people can and will do what they say. And I think in lots of organisations, people feel like nobody does trust them they're telling them constantly what to do the micro things they need to do whereas we hire good people in our organizations and then we manage to completely disempower them so i have the opposite view on that
0: often your strengths are also your weaknesses yep. what would you say your weaknesses are
1: well people will say my
0: bluntness is a weakness <laughs> <laughs> i think i get i think i get the same thing <laughs> yeah
1: i think so sometimes you know people say i'm scary because i do say things and you know, i'll say it out loud i'll say it honestly I'll say it bluntly, and that may be, you know, uncomfortable for people, but uh, I guess that weakness is one that I'm I'm prepared to live with. I think the other weakness people say is that I sometimes move faster than the organisation or individuals in the organisation feel like they can keep up with. And, uh, And again, that's probably fair criticism, but over time, all the people I work with will say to me, slow down. Uh, you're, you know, 10 steps ahead of us now. If you're two steps ahead of us, it's okay, but 10's too, too many, so slow down. So I pull myself back and uh, sort of go back and regroup. So, you know, those, all of us have blind spots and uh, I think the art of really good leadership is no understanding your blind spots but also being prepared to act when people call it out.
0: What traits do you think uh, women need to consider when they're taking on leadership positions?
1: Yeah, I think it's a tough one for women because now, of course, it's almost harder now uh, because the f- everyone's so, everyone has an opinion. More even when I first started in leadership roles, people just thought I was an odd odd one out <laughs> when I first started. <laughs> uh, and Because now, you're the only one? Yeah, because I was often the only woman in a room or I was the only you know, head of agency or there were three out of 50, you know, it was that sort of number. I think now it's tougher because women are, constantly being asked, did you get this because you're a woman? Uh, and you've got to fend that off. And often people will say that to me, oh, well, you only got that because you're a female. I went, went, went. And look at my results, you know, so it can't have been that bad a decision. Do people and really say that to you? Sometimes, yeah. Or they say it behind their hands. Behind your back. <laughs> behind their hands, yes. it's really um, I think I think we've got to just stand for ourselves and be confident enough to be uh, to accept that we've been given opportunity and just to take it and almost shut down the white noise that happens around us. And I think for lots of women that has been harder. They're, they're conscious of the noise around them. They're constant, uh, the constant back chat that some get. Uh, and I just think that we've got to learn to shut that down. Uh, I do think women maybe of my generation who were the odd one out there, we almost fall into two camps these days. There's a group who survived, by just putting a really hard shell on. So they were impervious to everything that happened around them. And for many of those women, you know, I meet women in scientific and technical STEM organizations, first generation of engineers, they had a really tough road. And those women, many of them survived by just shelling up, as I call it. Put your armor on, you go to work and you come home with only a you know, a surface wound and you feel like you've had a good day. So I think many of those women, and they're often the women that people say, oh my God, they're so tough and they don't support other women. They, are, they just needed to survive themselves. And so I think we need to cut them some slack as well and acknowledge that for many of them, being the first generation of women through many of those workplaces was incredibly tough.
0: So they didn't have the luxury of supporting other women around them?
1: And there were very few other women around them. Their survival is what's created the opportunity for so many women now. So I think we need to just hold back our judgement, you know, and understand what's happened for many of those women. But the reality is they have paved, they've cut a pathway through and it's much harder for organisations now to say women can't do any of those jobs because those women did do those jobs and they did them really well and they survived. And uh, now there's a much broader group of women coming through. So again, I think I don't think there's one categorisation. I don't think there's one way of looking at these things. I just think we've got to get to know the people who've made the pathway possible and we've got to behave in the way we would want others to behave to us.
0: So this is probably a completely irrelevant question then, but is it difficult for women to lead other women? I haven't found it difficult.
1: But I have encountered women who have very high expectations of me and sometimes I've said to them, at the end of the day, I am just another human being. Uh,
0: and what, what do you think they're looking for? You, you, you're supposed to be perfect, I guess.
1: Well, I think perfection, also they read perfection where it doesn't exist and none of us have the perfect pathway through uh, You know, I've got a child with a disability. I mean, that made my life much messier than most. You know, we've moved cities, we've done things that just have thrown our lives upside down. I've had the good fortune of being able to land well when I've done it, but it hasn't been without trade-offs, you know, my partner having to trade off jobs so that I got the job I wanted, all those trade-offs that everyone makes, the fighting about whose turn it was to pick up Nick from (laughs) childcare... The times when most of one income went just to make sure the rest of our life ran, Uh, you know, when we'd get home, there'd be no food, there'd be no, you know, (laughs) sort of the stuff people are trying to deal with at the moment, really. I mean, it's suddenly your life is, you know, gets turned on its head by the strangest things. So my life has been as messy as anybody else's, but people have ascribed some sort of magic to the things that I've done. And I talk about it honestly because I do want people to understand that you've got to face, everyone has to face into those things. And some of us land better than others, but my life is has not been perfect. It's not been somehow, you know, perfect wife, perfect mother, perfect everything. It, that just is not the true story for any of us.
0: What about managing men?
1: <laughs> That's had its moments.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I've had
1: plenty of uh, experiences where you can see them looking at me, going, "What is she doing here?" Actually, one of my my favourite stories really was uh, when I first started at Carnival, and we had a ship that was hit by a giant wave in the middle of the Pacific, north of New Zealand. We had to get all the passengers home, and we had to bring the ship into dry dock, into an emergency dry dock. I was really new in the you know my first two weeks in the job, and uh, the ship came into dry dock in Brisbane. Of course, the engineers, everyone on board knew that I'd started, had not set eyes on me at this point. And so I went up to see the ship, went to see what was happening, went to understand what was going on. And I turned up. I'd been to see the Queensland Premier immediately before, so I'm in a suit and high heels, turn up at the dry dock, and you can hear me coming, you know, clip, clop, clip, clop, in my high heels, and you can see everyone looking out going, either she's lost or it's her. And, uh, and of course, they realised quite quickly it was her. Um, and I said to them, so I want to have a look at what we need to fix. Like, where's the damage? What do we need to fix? Explain to me what these costs are so I can understand it. Uh, I'm going to have to um, talk to my bosses in the US and explain uh, how much this is going to cost, da-da-da. So uh, I kit up, as you, you have to do. It's an industrial environment, so I put my the overalls and the boots on and, goggles and earmuffs and off we go down into the engine room into the bowels of the ship and the engineers of course are looking going oh you know you could see the look in their face which is well she won't know anything about any of this what a waste of our time uh, and so I said to them so show me and they said well you've one of the issues is we've got these tanks and the steel is too thin uh, we've only just discovered that and we have to weld some steel and I go Yeah, well, that's fine. And they say, so do you want to have a look? And I go, oh, here we go. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I say, yes, I do. Mm -hmm. And so down into the tank I go. And, of course, it's foul (laughs) and stinking and, and, and. uh, And I say, anyone coming down? And they say, no, no, go down and, you know, look over here. So down I go. And I stay down a, a couple of minutes, longer than they thought I could or should, and I come up and they're staring at me, thinking, you know, maybe I'd died down there. You could almost see <laughs> their heads coming. And I come up and I go, well, it was pretty dark, but I can see what you're talking about. Uh, and they just looked at me and I thought to myself, none of them know I was a synchronized swimmer. <laughs> oh
0: so my. I can hold
1: my breath uh, for oh quite my. a long period of time. And after that moment, nobody sent me down a tank ever again. So sometimes in those environments, you've just got to do what it takes to get them to understand that I will do whatever it takes to understand what's going on in the business and for them not to treat me like an idiot. So the word went around very, you know, the rumour mill on ships is as effective as in any organisation. The word went around really fast that I was not to be toyed with because I looked them straight in the eye when I came back up and I said to them, I understand, I saw it and also I understand what you just did and everyone went silent. So sometimes you've got to do what it takes to demonstrate, one, that you're prepared to do what it takes and two, to call the behaviour, which I did because I knew they would, everybody who's, who ran any of the other brands, the cruise businesses around the world had grown up in the business except me. And so I knew there was general scepticism about what would a banker know other than how to get us funding.
0: It does go to my first point that you are a natural leader, however. <laughs> because I'm stubborn as
1: well. They were trying to prove that I was an idiot.
0: <laughs> well, more for them, right? But yeah. it would have been terrifying to many other leaders in those circumstances being slightly out of... I mean, you were running a bank until that point and yeah. now you're on a ship and you're in a tank. I want to just delve a little bit more into the office politics because you've just talked about a large-scale office politics where you're the leader and you've got a management team that's pretty sceptical. Yep. What about small-scale office politics? There's always lots of talk about running an all-female team that has its challenges, uh, running an all-male team for a female leader has its challenges. Can you tell us what sort of a- circumstances you've encountered and how you've tackled them?
1: I guess the first thing about being a leader is that ultimately you get to pick your team. So when I first came into Carnival and also, in fact, when I first went into Westpac in New Zealand as well, uh, there were teams in place and I was the, in both cases, the first female leader any of them had ever had. And you you immediately know the people who are um, one who think because you're female you're not worthy of their consideration, uh, which is sort of stupid when you say it out loud because you think actually I'm their boss. So <laughs> what were they thinking? Um, secondly, people who are skeptical about you because you don't have the same background as they do. You know, in the New Zealand example, it was what would you know about New Zealand? Uh, an Australian coming in to run a New Zealand business, uh, and in cruise, it was obviously what would you know about cruise? So. Uh, there's a few things. One is I uh, give everyone enough time to demonstrate both capability and commitment to the team and the task ahead. So I don't move on people immediately unless I see stuff which really requires that. At Carnival, there was a bit of that. I did move on a couple of people quite quickly because I went out on a ship in my first month I watched some of my executive team and the way they behaved and we'd taken travel agents out, we had customers on board the ship and I watched them sit at bars and drink as opposed, when they were on the job, as opposed to engaging with our distribution network, the travel agents and with our customers and understanding what they liked and didn't like about the product. And I just thought actually their job is to do that and they're not doing it in the way I think they should. So um observing people's behaviour on the job is quite a powerful way of working out quickly who really should be there and who shouldn't be. So I did move quickly on a couple of people uh, at Carnival. And similarly, uh, in the New Zealand business, what I did in that business was I decided I would go out and visit every single branch in my first month in the job, uh, which was quite an effort, I have to say. But I did that because I wanted to hear the impact of the leadership group on their business. And, you know, as I said earlier, I think there's something about getting to your front line quickly because that's where you see the impact of leadership decisions straight away. And that month, I learned so much about the business. (laughs) I learned that most of the organization had never seen any of their leadership team, (laughs) let alone the CEO. Uh, I learned that... Despite the fact that we'd, done, we'd merged two banks about three years before I started in that job, some of the branches hadn't even got the new uniforms, which I thought was quite surprising. Even more surprising was that the organisation didn't even seem to know that. Um, I, saw, I spoke to customers about things that, they had, that we'd said to them that we just didn't do. And so, again, in that organisation, it was really obvious that we had a couple of people who just needed to go straight away uh, because it would, they, those issues were so substantial in the business. You couldn't say, well, maybe they just hadn't got around to it or had, you know, it was, it was so fundamentally part of the job they should have been doing. Uh, and also in both those cases, it sent such a strong signal to the organisation, um, particularly to the front line of the organisation, that those things mattered enough for me to move, to change people out. And that gave me the opportunity also to say to everyone else, this is not, uh, you know, that I'm, I have low tolerance of really poor performance and I'm really clear about what we should be doing. And basically you're either onto it uh, and whatever you think of me as the first female leader of your organisation doesn't matter. And so I think people moved on from that really quickly once I started making those sorts of decisions. It was obvious um, in Carnival as well, there. you know, I came in at the time when, uh, in fact, my first day three in the job, I had the coroner hand down her findings uh, after an inquest that had gone on for years uh, over the death of one of our customers, one of our passengers on a ship. And Was that Diane Brimble? Diane Brimble, yeah. And, you know, we'd been front page of papers for years over that and uh, I did the most basic thing, uh, which was to say what a terrible thing it was, which we hadn't said publicly. And again, it's, you know, it's a bit like the sorry, uh, sorry to Indigenous communities that government took generations to say anything about. And yet that mo- those moments are so cathartic for organisations. So again, my gender disappeared quite quickly as an issue when I was prepared to do things that nobody had been prepared to do. And, you know, in some ways that's the hallmark of leadership as well. At the end of the day, the buck stops with you. And if you can't do it, then why would anybody else think it's their job to do? So I do, as uncomfortable as is. those things are hard to do. You know, you look terrible on TV when you're doing it. (laughs) All those vanity things. I mean, all that stuff goes through my head in the same way as it would anyone else's. But at the end of the day, if you don't do it, as a leader, then you can't expect other people to do it either.
0: I think it's clear to see why you've um, had the roles you've had. But I am interested to know, because I I see it a lot, eventually you do hit that rough terrain as a a leader. And for many women, it feels like it's a gender issue when that terrain uh, gets rocky. Mm. Did you ever have that period of time where you got caught in office politics and you felt that there was a bit of gender or not necessarily gender, just a toxic kind of situation that you had to navigate? And did you do a good job of it or a bad job of it?
1: Probably when I hit those environments is when I think about moving on. Uh, Because I'm so intolerant of that as an attitude. And uh, in some ways, my decision to leave banking partly came from that—not actually because of the, uh, you know, the group CEO who was very supportive of me and all that I managed to achieve in that in my roles both at Bank of Melbourne and at uh, in Westpac New Zealand—but actually uh, a couple of members of the board who were very conservative. Uh, and had started to uh, slightly undermine me in the public domain by back-briefing a couple of their mates who were old-school business journalists. And the first time it happened, I was completely taken aback and actually I rang the journal and said, like, where did that come from and Why? And he actually at least had the good grace to say, oh, well, you've got, you've got lots of supporters, mm. but you've got a couple of people who are not so supportive. And I thought, well, well, how interesting is that? Because I wouldn't have, people don't do that stuff to your face generally. The higher you get, the less likely they are to take you on head on. And so I thought, well, okay. Uh, and that probably did cause me just to stop and go, uh, do I want to push into this? Uh, they're a hard group of people to uh, fight against, and quite honestly, if you've lost confidence, or if you've got people who think you can't do a job like the one I was doing, it requires those jobs require you to have people have your back, and if people don't have your back, then it's a question about whether you can be as effective as you want to be. So that moment probably just tipped me into the market to say, maybe it's time, you know, I've done 13 years, it's been amazing, I've done some incredible jobs, I've loved it, but maybe it's time that I had at least looked around to see if there was something else. There's a thing that happens, I think, as soon as you shift your headspace, then suddenly people pick up that maybe you are more available than they thought you were. So a couple of the other banks came to me and said, you know, would you be interested? And I wasn't interested in doing the same job in another bank. I'd put too much heart and soul into what I'd done and the organisation. And then the carnival job came along, which was really a left-field proposition. And initially I said, no, no, too radical. But then I went and had a look at the business in the US and I just thought, wow.
0: How why can't
1: we be like that? <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and, you know, I looked at what was happening with the Diane Brimble case and all of those issues and thought – actually, I can pull some closure onto those things. We can change the way we run this business. We can do it differently. So it was that moment of suddenly realising that the slight back briefing against me was probably a signal of something that was not working as well as I thought or it could or should. And it was probably with a couple of people that I was never going to change partly because of their age stage and their view, their general view of the world. So, you know, maybe it was time for me to jump and look for something else. And then the opportunity came and the, you know, the rest is history.
0: What advice do you have for people listening to this podcast around managing teams? Uh, I think my advice is probably,
1: uh, there's probably three things I'd say. Um, One is get the best people in your team. And be really disciplined about that. So having warm bodies in your team might look good or you might look as though you've got a lot of people uh, around you. But if you haven't got the best people, your team will never be as good as it can be. So be really disciplined about getting great people. Uh, The second thing I'd say is get people who have different skills to you because great teams are made up of people with a variety of skills, not everyone with the same skill. Uh, Everyone with the same skill competes with each other. They don't collaborate and find different ways forward. The third thing about teams is get them together to share ideas. Don't have them all just doing their own thing because, again, the power of a team and the sporting analogies are obvious here. You know, having a, a team of people who can all run really fast is good unless you have to do something else. And all of our teams need to be doing lots of different things. So that thought process as you're pulling teams together is really important. Uh, Talk to your people in your teams and let them know what you're thinking and what you expect of them. Don't tell them what to do. Tell them what you want of them. You know, what's the outcome you're looking to drive? What's the context? So your communication has got to be relentless uh, and... Uh, but it's got to be the right level of communication for your teams really to operate effectively. And finally, celebrate the great things they do and celebrate the great people you've got. Don't forget about that because often, and, and I have been guilty of this, you're moving so fast, you know, I'm on to the next thing and everyone's going, well, what about that? Wasn't that amazing? And the truth is it was and I should have stopped and gone what a great thing we all did here, let's look at it, what did we do? And to some extent also reflect on how you did it because there's always learning in that celebration of things that have gone well. And, you know, the same if things don't go so well. What did we do? What could we have done differently? Let's at least learn from what we did if it hasn't been as good as we thought it would be so that the next time we make it work really well. But they're not, you know, none of that is rocket science and we all read about it. It's been written about endlessly, but the practice of it seems to be harder than people would imagine. So, you know, maybe you've just got to practice it as well.
0: The moving fast thing really, I really relate to because I think that's something I do. And I also don't celebrate as my um, my team would um, attest. I am interested in just picking apart that um, first comment, which is hiring the right people. Is there any particular personality trait that you look for that, is a standout trait for you uh, in terms of building a quality team?
1: Look, it's varied from team to team, but the standout for me is always attitude. And uh, if I've got 10 people with the right skill, and often you do, it's the person who really feels hungry, engaged, brings themselves to the conversation when you're making the selection that I will often choose over people who are telling me uh, who are restating their skills. And so I think in the energy of a team comes from people who are collectively committed to getting getting whatever it is done that we need to do as opposed to everybody being focused on how good their skills are. And so that it's that's and it's subtle that it's but I think attitude really is a huge determinant of success, all other things being equal.
0: You mentor a lot of women. And I said from the outset of this that um, you're the sort of person I ring up and say, can I run something past you? Uh, What advice do you have for young women in business at the moment? Um, And how's it varied from the advice you might have given, say, a decade earlier?
1: The advice is probably different for every individual because it's, um, you know, people ring me about all sorts of things. The first thing I say, because everyone rings me, say, could you mentor me? It's like, no. Um, But if you need help and if you've got a specific question, I will always pick up the phone. And so I think the idea of, for some women, you know, mentors are obviously really important and for others they just need someone who can give them advice at the moment they need it and that's probably more where I can be useful.
0: How many women are on that list at the moment? <laughs> uh, well, there's quite a few, maybe mm.
1: 20, I don't know. There's quite a few. Yeah. And people ring me occasionally and some people ring me a lot and, you know, it's hugely varied and I've, but I've watched them all grow mm. and do things they probably once would not have thought possible. So my advice has always been pretty consistent, which is you need to know yourself well before you throw yourself into things that require a lot of you. So that's partly about self-confidence and self-understanding and belief because uh, people will ring me and say, do you think I can do this? And I'll say, do you think you can do this? Because it's more important you think it than I think it. And And if you don't think it, why not and what would you need to do to make it happen? So there's something about self-belief that I try and help people understand and most get to it, most get there. Because it's almost like they've got too many, they listen to too many people. I often say to people, you know, I always had a voice in my head, which was, I'd say to my mother, I'm thinking about this. And she'd say, what's that? (laughs) And I think, no, ask the wrong person. (laughs) So you've got to ask, you know, and we've all got our mothers or our sisters or people around us who are telling us often what we can't do uh, as opposed to what we can do. So think about what you can do and what you really want to do is always my first bit of advice. The second thing is to, to keep pushing into space where you need to learn and find ways of learning because I think that gives you confidence as well. All of us wing it for a moment but you've also got to learn because you can't wing it forever. And then I often say, they'll say, oh, I don't think I'm ready. I go, mm, okay, so can you put your man voice on and say, if you were a bloke and all the men you know in your workplace, are they saying, I'm not ready? And they say, no, no, they're all saying I could have done it years ago. And I said, so why are you saying you're not ready? Because you know you're better than most of them. It's So lots of it is just about reframing where you're at and how you face into what you want to do as opposed to push it away or find a reason not to do it. And then the other thing is also about can I do this job, which is often what it's about, or this, can I change jobs or go in this space? Um, move in a different direction when, you know, I've got two kids or my son is only four and I'm not sure about this. It's like, well, they're the choices actually all of us end up having to make. Do you think you can find your good childcare? And if you can and you're happy with that, then go on, do it, you know, get into it. If you're not happy with that, think about why, you know, are you putting it off for another year because you're not confident or because you're not sure about that? Who are the people who are saying you can't do it? And do you need them actually in your life? Are they the people who are really important to you? Are they people who are trying to keep you close to them and like them as opposed to pushing into the things you want to do? So, you know, often my advice is about stuff that you just need someone to say to you, stop, think, refocus, recenter, be clear about what you want to do and then shut down everything else. Uh, But sometimes also it's about picking up the phone to someone else, saying, can you talk to this person? Can you give them an interview? I know you've got a job going. She's not on your short list. Can you at least put her into the process? Because men do that for each other all the time. And so I also do a lot of that, saying, please add her to your list. Please at least interview her. Please do this. And it often only takes one or two calls to open a door and then, If someone's in the right space and they've got what it takes, then they'll get it. And uh, I think that's an important thing that I can do now that I know a lot of people and I know people well enough to say please put them in. And they trust me that I wouldn't be doing it for, for someone who shouldn't be in the process. And then the final thing is often just to say to people, stop trying to do everything. Stop trying to be perfect. Stop trying to do everything in this year. You know, this is a long game. And this year do this and maybe next year do that rather than trying to do everything because I watch particularly younger women trying to be perfect at everything all at the same time, which is when I say everyone's life is messy and nobody can do everything at the same time. So stop trying to be some idealised version of the female executive up-and-coming lawyer, whatever it is, stop trying to be that because all of that is manufactured. Just be yourself.
0: Did that take you a while to figure out?
1: Uh, no, it didn't because it was obvious to me from pretty early on mm-hmm. that, that you can't do everything. You know, I, I mean, I had a baby in my, when I was 21. So, you know, I started, I started it early and I was still ambitious. You know, I wanted to work. I was never the person who thought I was going to be a great stay-at-home mum because I was never going to be that person. You know, I did go through moments, Martha Stewart moments, thinking I was going to be the perfect housewife and moved on from that pretty quickly because that's pretty boring as long as the house is relatively tidy and clean. And that's where you learn not to buy, st- not to clutter, you know, not to buy too much mm-hmm. rubbish and not to clutter your life because then you've got to clean it up all the time. You know, I learned by doing really and by experimenting with things and also because we moved a lot. I chased jobs and experiences all over the world. So each time you move, you suddenly go, my God, look at all this stuff we've got to get rid of. So we got better and better each time we moved at not lugging st- or putting everything into storage. You know, you, you come back from living overseas for a couple of years and you look at everything and you go, what is all this rubbish that I put in boxes and paid a fortune to store? Absolutely. So we've got much better at just, you just ditch it find other people who need it, put it out on the footpath and it's recycled immediately, whatever it takes. Yeah, so you learn that stuff, I think, and you resist the temptation to reclutter and re-amalgamate stuff you just don't need.
0: My final question to you today is what next? Ah, well, I'm in a quite a good sweet spot at the moment.
1: I've, um, I've got some interesting boards. I've got a diverse set of things I'm doing, which I love, Uh, And I've got things that are at the, as I would say, you know, the heart end of my interests, which includes chairing UNICEF, uh, still working with Cape York Partnerships on Indigenous activities and trying to get a a more, uh, just a better view of the Australia we want to be with uh, Indigenous, our Indigenous brothers and sisters, part of the community that we all are creating and want to be part of, as opposed to sitting on the fringes looking in and us looking out. I've got the commercial work that I'm doing, which I find engaging, um, challenging. You know, we're going into uncharted territory at the moment. So we're learning how we manage through all of that. And I'm still very engaged in the things that I think are part of the soul of what we do, uh, like being on the board of the Museum of Contemporary Art, you know, doing the things that just make us better human beings and so my portfolio is really um, is as I said is diverse and challenging and I'm loving being able to to have time because I'm not doing full-time executive work anymore to have time to be able to engage in all of those sectors so I feel incredibly privileged that I've got the opportunity to do that so and it's a really good sweet spot.
0: And cherry thank you for joining us uh, on the Leadership Podcast and thank you for your contribution to uh, the community. Thank you, Hill. It's quite a career. Thank you. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe. Executive Producer, Jenny Goggin. Sound Production by Darcy Thompson.